Let's open our Bibles tonight to 1 Kings. We're going to look at chapter 12 tonight. But just wanted to kind of recap a little bit of what happened in chapter 11. Chapter 11 is one of the most heartbreaking chapters, I think, in, since we've been in Samuel, one of them anyway. And um, we know that in chapter 11, Solomon was at the height of his popularity, at the height of his fame, and began to go down. And remember, we likened uh, Solomon's life to the, the form of a story plot, where we have an, an introduction and then, you know, rising action. It's, it's sort of like a, a story plot. And then there's a, there's a climax of the character's life, and then it's just falling action, and then finally the conclusion. And uh, the week before last was really Solomon's high point, uh, chapter 10, was really just an expression of Solomon's great wealth and his great fame. And then he was at the pinnacle of his uh, ministry, of his reign at that time. And he was somewhat 20 years into the ministry. Because remember, it took him seven years uh, to build the temple of God. And then 13 years to build his own palace. And then the palatial complex all around. And so uh, 20 years he was in building. And of course, during that time, he was putting to work the children of Israel during that time as well. But it was in chapter 11 where we really saw Solomon, really his, his reign and his character start to uh, diminish. And you remember that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He had 1,000 women in his life. And God had warned him over and over again that his wives would take away his heart. Um, in fact, back in the, in the law, back in Deuteronomy, remember, we looked at that. One of the things that God told uh, the kings or told Israel that God would raise up a king for them, but there were certain things that that king wasn't supposed to do. And one of them was to amass wives unto himself because it was very popular in the Orient at that time to have a harem. And, uh, and Solomon had quite a big harem. It took up a city block, I think. And, uh, and so it was not a really good thing. God had forewarned him of that. And he allowed him to do that. It wasn't his perfect will. We know that from the very beginning, even Jesus said this, that it's good for one man to be with one woman. God made a man and a woman, and they too shall become one. Not 1,000 shall be one with Solomon. No one to one, and why Solomon went this direction is really unfortunate. And but it was one of his downfalls. And in addition to uh, going against God's commandment and having the multiple wives, he also went against the Lord in amassing horses and chariots, which the kings of Israel were not to do. And the simple reason being, once a man has a fleet of horses at his disposal as a king, he's going to rely on the strength of those chariots and those horses. And it's, not, it's only a matter of time before his devotion, his, his uh, assurance and confidence in God to help him. Now he becomes high and mighty himself. And now he can take care of his own battles. Don't need you anymore. Thank you very much. And that, doesn't that happen? That, that's the unfortunate state of man. It's certainly the way fallen man always usually goes, but it's, it can be even the fate of a man who loves the Lord if he's not careful, if he's not walking in the Spirit, if he's not walking and being true to God, he can go down too. And we see men all around us and women falling into you know, uh, really awful things and awful sin things. 
and their lives, their careers, their families, their marriages just being destroyed because of carelessness and sin that they unrepentant of. And so, you know, these things do happen, and it's really unfortunate to see. And Solomon was that way. And on top of that, his wives turned away his, turned away his heart by allowing them to build houses or, or, or shrines or high places, worship centers to their respective gods. And you imagine you have a thousand wives and all the countries that those wives represent, there was probably, it was like, uh, uh, my hunch is it was like the, you know, Baskin Robbins, you know, 52 flavors or whatever it is, or, you know, uh, IHOP, International House of Pancakes, you know, all the flags, everything was represented. Hey, we're worshiping everything that goes, you know, and that's the way it was with Solomon. And God at that point was not pleased with them. It even said that God became angry with Solomon and, um, and he told him and he commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. And God said to him in verse 11 of chapter 11, he says, Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will do it not in your days for the sake of your father David." But I will tear it out of, your, out of the hand of your son, who we now know as Rehoboam. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. And it wasn't long after that that God rose up adversaries for Solomon. There was some men, uh, a man down in Edom, and there was also one up near Damascus. And, and, and those two areas really... Um, Form the north or the north and the south boundaries of Israel. So God had raised up these adversaries. They never attacked Solomon during his life, but they were more like gnats around your face. They were just an annoyance, and there was a threat of something, but it never came to pass because God was going to honor the covenant that He made with Solomon's father David. And he was going to give him peace in that 40 years. And God held true to his end of the deal, even though. Solomon did not follow through on his end of the deal, even though God had warned him and warned him and warned him. And so Solomon finds himself in a really um, unusual place. Things are starting to diminish. And then remember, as a result of all of his um, all of his merchandise and all of the business, remember, that Solomon was doing, we looked at that in chapter 10, he was a very busy, industrious man. He had things going all over the place, imports and exports, and everything was happening. He had many people involved in this, many servants that he was employing. And some of them, you know, um, they were slaves, and, and they did his, his work for all of those things. And he had put a gentleman by the name of Jeroboam, who was the son of Nebat. He was an Ephraimite. Uh, which is Ephraim, remember, is the tribe, one of the sons of Joseph. There was Ephraim and Manasseh. Well, Ephraim is one of the biggest tribes in the northern kingdom and has always been. And in fact, in the scriptures, you'll often find that when the Bible speaks, especially in the prophets, you'll find when it speaks of Ephraim, 
It'll, it'll, it'll call the northern ten tribes Ephraim, or it might call it Israel. And usually the, northern, or the southern two tribes, uh, which it says one tribe here, but Judah and Benjamin were so close to one another, they, they just kind of all were called Judah, even though they were two separate tribes. And we'll see that tonight as well. And so um, this gentleman, uh, Jeroboam, uh, Solomon had set over all of these labor workers that Solomon had going for him. And then finally one day, you remember, uh, he was out in the, he was leaving Jerusalem and Ahijah the prophet met him in the way and he had a, a, a cloak of 10 uh, different, uh, he had a cloak on, a new cloak, and he tore it in 12 pieces and he gave 10 to Jeroboam. Uh, signifying what God was going to do. And God told Ahijah the prophet to do that, just foreshadowing what was going to be happening in, in the lives of the Israelites and that Jeroboam would ultimately be the, the king over those northern ten tribes. And once Solomon heard about that, once Solomon heard that, even though it wasn't really his fault, I mean, here he is just walking along and this prophet comes up to him and God says, this is what I'm going to do. Once Solomon heard about that, he wanted to kill Jeroboam. Because Solomon, in his own heart, I believe, he knew he was, he was in sin. He knew it. His, diminish, his kingdom was diminishing. And now he sees the servant who he gave the authority. And what a great job it was. He gave him this authority over these uh, labor workers. And now he, from Solomon's perspective, is double-crossed by this man. So what does Jeroboam do? He flees to Egypt. And there, Shishak, uh, Shishak, king of Egypt, takes him in until Solomon dies. And that's really what happens. And so Solomon reigned for 40 years, and then he finally rested, and Rehoboam, his son, became his, uh, uh, succeeded him on the throne. And so let's read just the first 24 verses of chapter 12, and then we'll go back and so let's take a look. It says, And so Rehoboam, after the death of Solomon, he went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. And so it happened when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard it, he was still in Egypt, for he had fled from the presence of King Solomon and had been dwelling in Egypt, that they sent and they called him. And then Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we will serve you. And so he said to them, Depart for three days, and then come back to me. And the people departed. And then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he still lived. And he said, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But he rejected the advice of the, which the elders had given him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him, who had stood, with, uh, stood before him. And he said to them, What advice do you give? How should we answer this people whom have spoken to me, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father put on us? And then the young men who had grown up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus shall you speak to those people who have spoken to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. Thus shall you say to them, My little fingers shall be thicker than my father's waist. 
And now, whereas my father put a yoke, a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. And my father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges or scorpions. And so Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king had directed, saying, Come back to me the third day. Then the king answered the people roughly, and he rejected the advice which the elders had given him, and he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. And so the king did not listen to the people, for the turn of events, notice, was from the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord had spoken by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Now when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, What share have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now see to your own house, O David. And so Israel departed to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah. And then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was in charge of the revenue, but all Israel stoned him with stones, and he died. Therefore King Rehoboam mounted his chariot in haste to flee to Jerusalem, and so Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Now it came to pass, when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had come back, that they sent for him and called him to the congregation, and they made him king over all Israel." And there was none who followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. And when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah with the tribe of Benjamin. Notice, there they are. So it's not just Judah alone, it's Judah and Benjamin. 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against the house of Israel that he might restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, You shall not go up nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Let every man return to his house, for this thing is from me. And therefore, they obeyed the word of the Lord, and they turned back according to the word of the Lord. And I love that, that the fact that God would speak to him, and, um, and, and they listened. You know, it's, it's always good to listen to God. It's more important to obey God after you've listened. <laughs> and so, whenever we hear God speaking to us, obey him. Whenever you read something, obey him. When it speaks about things, take it to heart. Don't just think that it's for somebody else. God has you reading in the Word of God where He has you reading, and read it as, a, as it's, and let it affect us. Let it affect us, because if this Word of God, if it only is just words to us, then we're missing something. Now, are there times that you're going to be reading through a genealogy and it's not going to really speak to you, and then you've got to go to work? Yeah, that's going to happen. <laughs> but you know what? You don't give up, you keep reading. And you keep reading, and God will begin to speak to you. He'll show you things. Pray before you read. Say, Lord, show me something out of your word today. But that's what, finally, we see you know, uh, Rehoboam uh, doing that very thing, obeying God. Now, you might want to write in your Bibles, in the margin somewhere, uh, at near the beginning, because Second Chronicles chapter 10 through chapter 11, verse 4, 
are really a parallel account to this. In fact, 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, there's a lot of parallel accounts. Sometimes one set of uh, you know, chronicles or kings will give a little bit more information about the very same event. And so it's good as we read through this tonight, go and read Second Chronicles chapter 10 through 11 verse 4 and, and then reread what we have here. And in this case, there's really not a whole lot of difference, but in other chapters, there is some, some nuances that you pick up in those other things, in those other chapters. And so as we go back to verse 1 here, there's a lot to talk about tonight because I'm really looking forward to getting the last part of this chapter because it speaks about Jeroboam's golden calves. <laughs> so that's going to be an interesting uh, part of this uh, reading tonight. But notice back in 1 that Rehoboam went to Shechem. And, and this Shechem is, if you were to look at Israel and you had the Sea of Galilee up here in the north and then the Dead Sea down here in the south, somewhere between the middle, right in the middle really, and then going over to the west across the mountain range uh, several miles over, you'll find a little town of Shechem. And this town ought to ring a bell with you because it was one of the very first places that the first place that God appeared to Abraham uh, and promised him all the land of Canaan in Genesis chapter 12. It's also a place where Jacob had settled. And it's also a place where Joseph, uh, one of the 12 sons from, uh, of Jacob, was buried there as well after the children of Israel came back into uh, Canaan from Egypt. They buried his bones there. And it's also a place in Joshua 24 where it records for us that when they came into the promised land after being in the desert for 40 years, they, they made a stop at Mount Ebal and Mount uh, Gerizim, and that's where they dedicated themselves to keep the Mosaic law. So it's this very same place now that, um, where it says that Rehoboam went to Shechem, and all of Israel went there to coronate him. And, uh, and so it happened when Jeroboam heard of it, you know, he was still in Egypt. And we remember that Jeroboam had fled to Egypt. Uh, we saw that back in uh, chapter 11. And, um, and God had um, told Jeroboam that he was going to ultimately be king over those ten tribes in the north. And so obviously Solomon hated him. So... We go on there and look down at verse 6 with me, since we have already read it. It says that King Rehoboam, notice, consulted the elders. He consulted the elders that had, had been serving his father David. Uh, I'm sorry, that has been serving his father Solomon, excuse me. And, and notice what he asked them. He says, how do you advise me to answer these people? Because the people, you know wanted the, the work to be lessened, they wanted less work, and they'd been working very hard, and it was probably a good idea that Rehoboam would have given them a break of some kind, but instead of giving them the break, he added more to their, to their labor. But notice it's good that he consulted the elders. It was a good first move. You know, in Proverbs chapter 11, what does it tell us? Where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is what? There's safety, right? Remember that. In the multitude of counselors, there is safety. So invoking these men, these elders, was a really good thing. It was a really good thing that he did. <laughs> and, um, 
And they spoke to him, and notice what they said, verse 7, if you will be a servant, if you will be a servant, notice that what they are encouraging him to do, to be a servant. Yes, he's the king, and unfortunately, many kings are the king of the hill, and they, they want to be the one that's served, not the one that serves, but God has set forth this example for us that you know, that we should serve. If we want to be great in God's kingdom, we need to be willing to serve. And this word servant here in verse 7 literally means a bondman or a bondservant, a similar to a, what we would call in the New Testament a doulos, a bondservant. When Paul would say, Paul the apostle, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. It's a similar term, but in Hebrew. Okay? So the, the older, the elders, they tell him, if you want to be a servant, to these people today and serve them, and you answer them and speak good words to them, then they're going to be your servants forever, Rehoboam. And Solomon's father, David, was such a man, wasn't he? We know that David was a servant. Solomon's father, Rehoboam's grandfather, was a servant. He was willing to do anything. He was the one who watched the sheep when all of his older brothers didn't want to do it. The youngest, the most insignificant, the eighth of Jesse, he was the one who served. And he would do anything. But I love what it says in Matthew chapter 20. Remember, Jesus called uh, his disciples to himself and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whosoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son. Notice the, the comparison here. It's comparing, comparing Jesus, which is always a good thing for us to do. You know, one of the places where we get stuck as Christians is we, we begin to compare ourselves with one another. You begin to do that, and there's going to be no end of your comparison. And it's not going to be fair. It's not going to be just. It's not going to be right. And you're going to be miserable. Because someone's always going to be better than you. And you're, you're going to feel like you're better than somebody else. But there's one who is over us who is better than all. And who is that? Jesus, yes. And just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, notice, he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He didn't come to be served, but to serve, and he gave his life a ransom for many. Boy, if all of our world leaders had that as their heart, things would be so much different, wouldn't they? And yet, isn't this the golden rule? <laughs> Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Do you want them to serve you, Solomon? Then you serve them. You initiate it. You initiate it. Men, you initiate being a servant in your home and at your workplace. You initiate it. You take the initiative to be a servant. When everyone else is laying around doing nothing and complaining about their wages, you be the one to wash the toilets. You be the one to mop, mop the floors. Set that example. Raise the bar. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you've got to be willing to do the toilets. You've got to be willing to wash the floors. You've got to be willing to pick the gum off underneath the chairs. You've got to be willing to vacuum. You've got to be willing to do all those things, even in your own home. Be willing. Be a servant. Be a servant. That's what God wants us to be, as servants. And if we do it as unto him, it won't seem like a chore at all. I remember many years ago I was mopping, and I've told the story a few times, but it's true. I was in the 
fellowship hall and we had the Bread of Life Christian Academy happening here. And I remember one time I, you know, my life was being consumed by the school at that time. And I started to resent it a little bit because I really wanted to spend more time on worship, which, you know, that's part of what I was supposed to do. And I found myself getting absorbed so much into the other stuff, the cleaning and stuff like that, that I, that part of my ministry was, in my opinion, suffering. And I remember one day out there, and I just had a, all the kids were in their classrooms, and I was in there wiping the chairs and the tables and mopping the floor, and I just had this moment with the Lord, and I'm like, Lord, I'm just, I'm really tired of this. I've been doing this for years now. <laughs> and I'm just, you know, I feel like, there's just something more, and I just got really, I had, I had a pity party is what I had. And I just said, I can't do this. I can't do this for Jeff. I love him, but I just, I, I'm, I'm getting weary in this. And he says, but can you do it for me? And I'm like, oh. And then it changed my whole attitude, and I needed that, because I was doing it for the wrong reason. Certainly, I love Pastor Jeff. He's like a dad to me, and I would do anything for him. You know, and at that time, I think my vision, my thoughts were not quite right. Who was I doing all this for? Was I doing it for him? Was I doing it for Calvary Chapel? It had to be more than that, because there will come a point in your life, if it hasn't already, that you'll be doing something, and, and you're going to get fed up, and, you're gonna have to, and then the Lord's going to have to say to you, well, will you do it for me? Can you mop that floor, Rob? Can you clean that toilet? Can you do it for me? I know you can't do it for Jeff anymore, and I can understand that because he's a man, a great man, but he's, he's just a man. But can you do it for me? And I'm like, I literally broke down in tears, and I repented. <laughs> I asked God to forgive me, and I put my, my AirPods or whatever they were in my ears again and went back to washing tables with a whole different heart. But he was supposed to be a servant, and that's what the elders told him. But he rejected the advice of the elders uh, that they had given him, and he consulted the young men. Now, Rehoboam wasn't a young man comparatively. I mean, he was 41 years old. It tells us that in 1 Kings 14, 21, that he was 41 years old when he became king. So he wasn't a young man, but he was very inexperienced. And unfortunately, he was immature in leadership, and he lacked a shepherd's heart at that time. And he naturally chose the counsel of his pals that he had grown up with. Instead of honoring those aged men who had been with his father, he, he consults these, these younger men. And notice in verse 9 what it says. Uh, it says, and, and he said to them, what advice, do you, what advice do you give? How should we answer this people? Now he's speaking to the young men. Do you, do you notice the difference with what has happened here? He says, Notice the difference. How should we answer this people? Now look back at verse 6 and notice what it says when he was talking to the elders. How do you advise me to answer this people? Do you see the difference? It's a subtle thing, but the difference is interesting because the older men were there to assist him, and they were very comfortable with answering to him because they knew that he was a king. He knew that he, they knew that he was king, and that was their chain of command, and they were very comfortable with it. So he was able to approach them and say, what do you think that I should do? But now notice in the verse that we're looking at now in verse 9, what does he say to him, say to his friends, how should we answer this people? Wait, I thought he was king. But notice how that little pronoun, yes, pronouns were big back then too, but for a different reason. 
How should we answer this people? And Rehoboam here flatters the young men who grew up with him and speaks to them as if they are his equal. Do you see that? And thus he's establishing this generational clique. And see, this is where uh, discipleship breaks down. It's where it breaks down. He, Rehoboam should have been in a place of being discipled, but instead he refuses to be discipled. And now he just wants his best buds to kind of give me, tell me what I, we should do. Ah, just give them, you know, and that's exactly what he does. You see, in order for discipleship to work, one has to be willing to be discipled and the other has to be willing to be or willing to be a disciple and someone else has to be willing to be a disciple. To be discipled and to disciple. And every Christian should seek to not only be a disciple of someone older and wiser than them, but also seek to disciple someone younger than themselves. It's a really healthy thing to do. And I see it uh, here in the fellowship. There's a couple people that I'm thinking of specifically where I see an older man discipling a younger man and the younger man willing to be discipled by the older man. And when you see stuff like that, it's really wonderful. Guys, encourage that. Grab a hold of some young guy. If you've got skills and you want to help him out and... You know, and, and he's got to be willing as well. It, it, sometimes it doesn't work, does it? Because one doesn't want it. If, if it's going to happen, they both have to see the value in it and, and then do it together. But throughout the Bible, we see this. And it can happen with women and with men. The, the older women should encourage and disciple the younger women. And those older women should be discipled by women who have stood in the, you know, in the Lord's path longer than they have. But in the Bible, we see this. You know, we see Moses discipling Joshua. We see Elijah discipling Elisha. We see Jesus discipling the Twelve. We see the Apostle Paul discipling Timothy. And even more, now in the 20th century, Pastor Chuck disciples Bill Gallatin. Bill Gallatin disciples Jeff Breed, and Jeff Breed disciples me. <laughs> That's how it works. Be willing to disciple and also be willing to be discipled. But it takes two. You both have to understand the value of it. And it's rare, especially today, I think. One has to remove the pride. Usually it's the young man who thinks he knows everything. He's got to be willing to listen to somebody. And that older man's got to be willing to put up with this little arrogant fool. <laughs> Oftentimes that can be. And then to be willing to encourage them but there's hopefully no resistance if the the younger is willing to be discipled and it's a beautiful thing when it happens but notice that the young men who have grown up with them they, they speak a harsh word and they say you know to be really harsh with them and so he does and notice in verse 11 and, and they say now whereas my father has put a heavy yoke on you i will add to your yoke and my father chastised you with whips but i will chastise you with scourges the word there is scorpions in the King James, and basically what this is is a particular type of whip with sharp pieces of metal in it. Think of it like the Roman flagellum. That's really what it is. And a scorpion is, is usually a, a three straps, and it would have metal and bone uh, laced inside of it and, and, and embedded in those leather straps, and that's what they would use to um, in, in, uh, question people. So that's what he's talking about here. So Jeroboam, they came to him the third day, and, 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 and they did, and he answered all of those things and basically just uh, told them that he's not going to let up on them, but he's going to chastise them with scourges or scorpions. 
And so the king, verse 15, did not listen to the people. For the turn of events, notice, underline this, was from the Lord. It was from the Lord because you remember back in, um, let's see, where was it? As you look in verse uh, 11, or chapter 11, as Ahijah is meeting with Jeroboam, he speaks to him these things. And, um, and so God ultimately brings this to pass. He brings this prophecy that he's going to tear away the kingdom from him uh, because of Solomon's rebellion. And certainly Rehoboam is not being a very mature, very strong leader at this point either. And he, you know, he's 41 years old, he, but he lacked that leadership uh, skill, and uh, certainly he had opportunity to grow in that as time went on. But notice that the relationship between Judah now and the northern ten tribes, it's always been a little tentative. Notice what it says here in verse 16. So, now when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king saying, "How um, we have no inheritance, or what share have we in David? To your tents, O Israel." Now see to your house, your own house, O David. And so Israel departed to their tents. And if you look at this, you might want to write in the margin of your Bible next to verse 16, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 19, verse 40. 2 Samuel 19, verse 40, through chapter 20, verse 2. And you'll see the cause of the quarrel. And we don't have time to go there, but in a, in a very quick nutshell... When David, remember, was running from Absalom, his son, he went over on the eastern side of the Jordan River, and when uh, Absalom had died, David went back. And as he's crossing the Jordan River to go back west into Jerusalem, the tribe of Judah met him, but the, the, the other northern ten tribes, or the, the, the tribes of uh, Ephraim and those in the north, uh, they didn't come, and they, they weren't notified. And so they got really offended that they weren't able to come and escort the king across and have this big you know, celebration. And, and ever since then, the, this tension between the northern ten tribes and the southern two tribes was always very tentative. And so now we're seeing that it's starting to break and to, and to sever. And uh, in fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 20, verse 1 and 2, you see the very same phrase that the men here in verse 16, they use. Because in 2 Samuel 20, remember there was that man um, whose name was Sheba who rebelled against David, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew a trumpet and he said, We have no part in David, neither have we inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So this became like a battle cry. And, and so where, this, where you see it here in verse 16 in our text tonight, where did that come from? It came from 2 Samuel chapter 20, verse 1. So read that over and you'll see the, the, initiate, uh, the initial quarrel that began between Judah and the other northern uh, tribes. And, and so this is really what this is, is the, 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 the whole kingdom now beginning to separate from a united kingdom, which was first by you know, Saul, and then David, and then Solomon, it was united. But now under Rehoboam, everything starts to fall apart and it becomes a divided kingdom. And so 
But Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah. And then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was in charge of the revenue. But all the, so he sends this man who is in charge, evidently, of, of gathering the money or the, you know, the census or the tax or whatever you want. Um, and, and they stone him. And it was kind of a foolish thing for uh, Rehoboam to do, knowing that there's already this tension. And now he knows that the northern ten tribes are going to go to Jeroboam, and he's only going to have the southern two tribes. And he's, but he still wants their money. Because, you know, there are a lot of people, and if I can't get their money, I'm going to be broke. And so uh, he sends this man, Adoram, and they stone him with stones. And at that point, Rehoboam realizes, ah, things aren't going so well here. So he gets in his chariot, flees to Jerusalem. And so Israel was in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And then let's go down to... uh, we, we looked at verse uh, 21, but notice verse 24, remember, now he's trying to, Rehoboam's trying to get the men of Judah and Benjamin together, 180,000 men, and God tells him, you, sh- you shall not go up against your brethren, and, and to his credit, Rehoboam finally, you know, he did listen to the prophet when he said this. And, um, and they averted a war, which was a really good thing. And um, so look at verse 25. This is where things get a little interesting here. Notice it says, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there. And also he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the, now the kingdom may return to the house of David. Now, remember, as, as, as the feasts happen, there were three feasts that happened every year where all Jewish meals were supposed to go to Jerusalem. And we know that they are the Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the uh, Pentecost. And so they were, um, yeah, that's right, and they were to go. But now Jeroboam, who is overseeing the northern ten tribes, has got a problem. Because now that he's got control of the ten, now they're all going to want to go at three times a year down to Jerusalem. So his wheels start to spin, and you can understand what he's thinking. And he says in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David, verse 27, and this is why. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord. And Rehoboam, king of Judah, and, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So... Having the feasts be in Jerusalem, he's got to think of something really quick to keep these people from going to Judah. Because once they start going, they're going to start warming up to Rehoboam. And you better believe that Rehoboam is going to give them the treatment when they come. Oh, it's so good to see you. You know, and hand everybody a thing of popcorn as they're coming into Jerusalem. Yeah, come on, I got popcorn and balloons for the kids. Come on, guys. And they're like, oh, this guy's so great, man. I don't want to go back to that Jeroboam. Right? And you better believe he would do that. So his motivation here, Jeroboam, was fear, which is not uncommon. We all have fears, (laughs) and this was his. But notice in verse 28, Therefore the king asked advice. Notice he asked advice, but he didn't inquire of the Lord. And here's another character flaw of Rehoboam, or Jeroboam, excuse me. So therefore the king asked advice, And make two calves of gold, 
and, and said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar to you? Notice that Jeroboam didn't ask the Lord, but rather he asked the rebels who are around him. And then he gets this demonically inspired idea of creating two worship centers now. Now instead of Jerusalem being the place, he creates one in Bethel, which is in the, you know, in the middle of the, of the it's still in, in the northern area, but it's one here and then in Bethel, and then the other one is up in Dan, right up on the border of Lebanon and Syria. And so in this, he's violating God's law, isn't he? Because God said that everybody should go to Jerusalem to worship, but now he's thinking he's going to lose his people. So he creates two centers, and then he does something even worse. He makes two calves of gold. Do you remember what I said in Exodus? (laughs) The Lord, speaking to the children of Israel, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall make... For yourself, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down or serve them. And now, what is Jeroboam doing? He's creating these two centers, two calves of gold, representing exactly what God told them not to do. And here he is, the progenitor of all things filthy, all things that are just spiritual adultery and idolatry. And he is. The, the man who's doing it. And what's interesting, because in Exodus 20, he says that, God says that. And then in Exodus chapter 24, Israel affirms this covenant. And you can read it for yourself, but in uh, verse uh, 3 of Exodus 24, notice what the people said, how they responded when God said these things, gave them the Ten Commandments, including the ones I just read to you. This is what they said. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And notice, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said we will do. That was the attitude of their heart, and that was a good thing. They didn't know their own rebellion. They didn't know their own heart, but that was what they said. And they said, and then again, down in verse 7 of that same chapter in Exodus 24, and they said, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. Again, they say the very same thing. And then finally, now you fast forward seven or eight more chapters, and what is it that the Israelites do? Exodus 32, we know this very well. Let me just read the first six verses. Moses, remember, is on top of Mount Sinai receiving the commandments, the Ten Commandments, and other laws and statutes as well. It says that when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, and remember, they were only just a handful of months, I think three months or something like that, from Egypt, and now they're wandering in the desert. He's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. They're thinking, the guy probably got bit by a snake. He's dead. We haven't seen him. So when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together and to Aaron and said to him, you know, this is uh, Moses' older brother who was the high priest. The high priest, the one who's supposed to be leading them in worship of God. And they said to Aaron, come, make us gods that shall go before us. And as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And Aaron said, something really wonderful and convenient. Break off the golden earrings which are in your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. And so all the people broke off the gold earrings which were in their ears. They brought them to Aaron and he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it. Notice this. He, He fashioned it with an engraving tool. He did. 
Later on, he would tell Moses that he threw in the gold in the fire and out popped a calf. But we know that he really did it because he said, if he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molten calf. So what Jeroboam is doing is nothing new. In fact, this, and notice what they said after they completed that. They said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Isn't that exactly what Jeroboam said at these altars in Bethel and Dan? He said the very same thing. Same God they're worshiping. Same God. In fact, this calf, the deity in Egypt is called Apis. Apis or Hapis is the name of this Egyptian deity that they worship. So if you're a cow in Egypt, you're in good shape. Right? And so they worship cows. And so when the Israelites came out of Israel or out of Egypt, they had learned idolatry. They've seen it firsthand in Egypt. So when they get out into the desert, and, and they actually show this. If you've ever seen, uh, there's a really fascinating video. Um, some believe, and, and, and I kind of believe this too. Uh, I'd like to look into it a little bit further. But most people think Mount Sinai is at the tip of the Mount Sinai, you know, the Sinai Peninsula right there at the tip, but there's some others who believe it's actually in Midian on, in what's common uh, modern-day Saudi Arabia, and there have been men who have gone over there, and, and this place is um, not easy to get to, and you really can't get over there unless you want to risk your life, but there, there's images of, and they, and they believe this may have been where the exodus really occurred or where, they, where the real Mount Sinai, Jabal Musa, really is. And so there's a debate about that and don't really know what to think about it yet. But there, there's engravings on stones that go back to this era and they think that the Israelites were drawing these cows because that, that's, what, that's the golden calf that they made at that very site. They, they drew pictures of this, and they had all these different things that, that seemed to lead that that may have been the place. But this apis, this bull god, was what they worshipped. Pretty interesting. And notice, and he set up one in Bethel, in the, um, uh, just north of Jerusalem. And then Dan, way up in the northern part of Israel. In fact, we visit this place, Dan up where the headwaters are from Mount Hermon, is it the Hermon, the snow, even in the summertime, the snow is still melting. And the water comes down into a couple, a handful of different tributaries, and they form the Baniah Spring, and ultimately they go into the Jordan River. Uh, and then they go down to the Sea of Galilee, down through the Jordan, ultimately being landlocked in the Dead Sea. But we visit this center when we go to Israel, this very site of Dan. And you can actually go there. I got pictures of it. And you can actually see, uh, they reenacted, they, they've got the altar. It's, the altar itself is gone, but the, the foundation of it is still there. And you can see where they worshipped, where they did this with the golden calf. And um, that's the exact spot where it happened. And they sacrificed children. They did all kinds of horrible things up there. But that's where Jeroboam set up one of those golden calves was up there. And it's really interesting to just uh, sit there on that spot and, and to have this passage read to you, realizing so long ago there was a worship service, worship services where people were doing these heinous things and worshiping this golden calf. And you're, you're right there, and you can see it. It's quite amazing. 
And so now this thing became a sin for the people. They went to worship before the one, even as far as Dan. And he made shrines on the high places and made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. So Jeroboam was completely in the wrong and directly rebelling against the revealed will of God. We know that only the Levites were the ones to offer sacrifices. And so now he's just, he's doing anything he can. He's grasping at straws, trying to retain his power, keep the people in the northern part, making these two centers giving them what they really want. And let me tell you something. The, the, the flesh loves to do anything but worship the true and living God. <laughs> the flesh will do anything but worship the real, true, living God. And notice, verse 32, so Jeroboam He ordained a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month. You might want to underline that. Underline the 15th day of the 8th month and then put this scripture reference right above it. (laughs) Leviticus 23, verse 33 through 36. And here's why. Leviticus 23, verse 33 through 36. Because notice what he did. He ordained a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month. But what does Leviticus 23 say? Let me read it to you. Because this was God giving to the children of Israel these feasts that they were to do. It says now in verse, uh, Leviticus 23, verse 33, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be a feast of tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. So the 15th day of the seventh month is the feast of tabernacles. But what does Jeroboam do? He has a similar feast the same day, but a month later on the eighth month, 15th day of the eighth month. And so now, instead of going down to Jerusalem, just hang out here for an extra month and we can do it up here. And that's exactly what he does. And it says that, you know, which he made, he made this feast day. God didn't make that day. That was something of Jeroboam's doing So Jeroboam made worship convenient. It appealed to their flesh. And false worship will always be convenient and appeal to the flesh. You know, we need to be careful about worship because in our country, there's so many people in the church, and I'm not saying any of you, but there are people in the church that are, that they worship worship. They don't worship God. They they say they do, but really what they're worshiping is how they feel when the worship team does what they do. If I don't feel good about what happened, then... I'm not worshiping, or I, I, didn't, I didn't worship today. Well, you certainly didn't because your eyes were on the worship team. And you certainly didn't do it because your eyes are, not, are on yourself about how you feel. And let me ask, is, is worship about us, or is it about God? It's about God, right? And so we worship him. When we sing the words of the songs, we are, we are basically invoking our heart, hopefully, to wake up to get out of ourselves and to really think about the words, and hopefully the words, they glorify him. And if we're doing that, then we are worshiping him. But if I walk away from the worship service, and, I, and it, there, wasn't just, there wasn't enough up-tempoed songs, I didn't have the lights, there was no smoke on the stage, there wasn't a guy in a black suit with a camera going around like this, you know, and you know, zooming in on people and getting right up in your face while you're lifting your hands, you know, and got, you know zooming in on you. You know, is that worship? I mean, may, it, maybe it can be, but... When you get to that level, something else is happening. And we got to be careful. 
Because much of worship that is happening in the churches in America is not worship, all, worship at all. It's entertainment. It's Christian entertainment. It's a concert. If the music's loud and it gets me going, then man, I've really worshipped. If I'm tapping my foot and because it's all about me. I mean, it's all about you, God. I mean, wait, is it about me or is it about God? <laughs> we have to ask, the, ask that question. There are people who have left this church because the worship wasn't as upbeat as they would like, and they left. And I love them, and I know who they are, and I love them dearly, but their attitude was wrong. They're worshiping something else. Hopefully they find the Lord in it, and wherever they go and they worship, hopefully they worship Jesus. Because, folks, we could worship the Lord with the same song on one string banjo. If our hearts are right, we can worship with a tune, an out-of-tune guitar, if our hearts are right. And Sarah's guitar is never out of tune. And my guitar sometimes was in tune. So it doesn't matter how many people are up there. See, our whole attitude about worship is so messed up. And we get that because of all the stuff we see. Mega churches and big churches. Oh, they got this huge worship team. And boy, if that's not happening, it's not really worship. You better leave and go find someplace else. Oh, that's just a, a dismal place where the church has gotten, if that is our attitude. And we can't, we got to resist it. Because worship is not about me. It's not how I feel about worship. And so we grow in that, don't we? Don't we grow? I mean, we grow in our worship of God. And, and that's okay because God wants us to grow in it. And I'm growing. I'm continuing to grow in worship. I remember this last time when we went down to uh, Calvary Chapel of Philly. They had one guy on a guitar. <laughs> one guy with a guitar. And he was singing hymns. And there were 1,400 men singing their guts out. And the roof was just buzzing. So many men singing in that room. One man, one guitar. Can it happen with just one man and one guitar? Even if the light bulb is not quite right on him? You know, can it, can it happen? Yeah, it can. And it does. And God blesses and anoints it. So be careful about worship. Because Jeroboam was completely in sin. And it's an, a sad commentary that it's because of his leadership and what he did that the northern ten tribes, they never, ever stopped their idolatry. Never for once. They always continued. They had a great, great leader in Jeroboam and doing these evil things. And the northern ten tribes, they continued to do it. And that is precisely why they were the first ones to be taken captive by the Assyrians in 721 B.C. God had had enough of their new moons and their feasts and them feigning to worship God. And he's like, you know what? I've had enough of all the noise that you're making. And I'm sending Sennacherib, and he's going to come, and he's going to take you captive. And he led them out with fish hooks in their jaws and in their lips, and he led them out on a chain. Yes, God did that. Because his own people had played spiritual harlotry and a spiritual adultery, and they never, ever stopped. And Judah was down in the south looking at their northern sister, hopefully learning something. And it wasn't for another 150 so or more years before God had to take them captive. 
because they didn't learn either. And God warned them. He warned them over and over again. So he made offerings, verse 33, and we're ending here. So he made offerings on the altar which he had made. Notice, he had made this altar in Bethel. On the 15th day of the 8th month, in the month which he had devised in his own heart, notice, and he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar and burned incense. And so, as we continue on in Kings, you're going to see that only a small number of people from Judah were really good kings and the rest of them were evil, but all the kings in the northern ten tribes were perpetual evil from beginning to end until God had to take them captive. And so, you know, I, when I, as I think about uh, Jeroboam, I think about worship, you know, let, let's, let's be careful about that. You know, anything can be idolatry. You know, you can idolize a job. You can idolize, uh, an idol can be your spouse if you're not careful. It can be a, a car that you love. It can be a, a place on the, on the lake. And, the, and there's nothing wrong with enjoying things. God wants you to enjoy those things. But when those things become more important to you and you're willing to sacrifice anything for them, and that is the real litmus test, is whenever I, I can't do without it, I'll sacrifice anything to have it. Then you become like Gollum with the ring, my precious. <laughs> then it becomes idolatry. Then it becomes a problem. Then you know you've gone too far. And the best thing you can do is give that up as quickly as possible, if the Lord calls you to do it. But you've got to get your heart right, right? And so let's, let's, uh, why don't we stand together and let's pray. And, um, and may we never uh, get involved in those kinds of things either. Let's, let's keep our hearts pure before God and all things that we do. Just come before him and say, Lord, forgive me for all my sin. And Lord, if there's anything, and let's pray that tonight. Father, if there is anything in our life tonight that you could put a finger on and say, this, this thing is keeping you from me. Lord, help us to be willing to, to, to own it. And, and Lord, you may not require it to require us to get rid of it. You may, you may not. But Lord, help us to be honest. If there is anything in our life that is more important than you, if we would rather do anything else and we, just, we, we couldn't part with this one thing. Lord, help us to be very careful. And Lord, help us to remember that worship is never convenient. It's never easy. Lord, it should never be convenient. It is a sacrifice. And Lord, I confess to you that worship as we sing is probably one of the most easiest ways that we worship. Although my heart doesn't always even want to sing to you. And so, Lord, would you change my brother's hearts and mine, Lord, uh, that we would just be better about this, that we would really uh, examine our hearts about worship again. And, Lord, that we'd be careful. Lord, we thank you, and thank you that you accomplished the greatest worship service. It happened on a cross on Calvary. Lord, that sacrifice was the greatest worship service, and it was yet it was the most ugly and the most painful. It was bloody. It was horrible. And yet, God, you received your son, and the proof of it was on the third day you rose him from the grave. And so, Lord, we thank you for that provision and help us to remember that that's the, that's the benchmark. 
Lord, as what you did on the cross. And so we thank you, Lord. Would you please encourage us tonight, Lord? I pray that you bless my brothers and sisters. Lord, they're on their way home. Keep them safe. Bless them tomorrow as they go to work and whatever they put their hand to. Encourage them, Lord, and protect them and, and, and provide for them and everything, God, that they put their hands to. Would you provide and bless this body here at Calvary? We thank you, Lord, for your great love for us, Lord. You are so awesome. We love you, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a good night.